I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. Hey guys, this is uh, the third episode of the seventh season of the first podcast on liturgy. <laughs> what? <That's> like, <laughs> a, a, a podcast from the seventh season of the third verse of the oh, third. <laughs> this is like biblical uh, I know, books, I know. chapters and verses. That's great. We're going to have to list them like the number and the colon from now on. Like we're like we're uh, quoting scripture. Oh yeah, liturgy guys. Twelve colon four through six. <laughs> oh man. Well, it depends on which translation you use, because <laughs> well, you know that's not a bad entry into the beginning of the bishop's document on the mystery what? of the Eucharist and the life. Of the oh, church. I love it! I love it when a plan comes together. Yeah, or a lack of plan comes together. More like it. This was the document that bishops wrote to to what Chris to sort of open up the Eucharistic revival or to lay out the groundwork for it right the yeah, theological I, underpinning yeah i suppose it's uh, kind of the theological and pastoral basis for the for the year that's that's ahead so yeah i don't know who wrote it let's see it's um developed it's by the committee on doctrine of the usccb approved by the full body november 21 right, there you go although there's a letter in the beginning from our very own friend michael jk fuller um, oh. that it has been authorized for publication. Remember, Father Fuller was a you remember faculty Father member. I remember Father Fuller. There's there's like an alliteration joke in there. Father Fuller filled up. Anyway, um, he's now, what is he? General Secretary, right? Yeah, That's a big deal. So. And it starts off not with, the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. It starts off with, we are not self-sufficient. By ourselves, we founder. We need the Lord like ancient navigators needed the stars. Who said that? Pope Francis. Oh, That's yeah. it starts off with that really, you know, haunting moment during the um the pandemic when Pope Francis was alone in St. Peter's Square. In did you rain. actually see that? I did watch you it. Remember yeah. watching it? Do you, Jesse? Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. That was good. Was that Good Friday? I think it was. Uh yeah, maybe it was. And remember. he's there was, alone, and it's cold, and it's raining, and you know he just says it. Faith begins when we realize we are in need of salvation. We are not self-sufficient, so we are not liturgy guys, two, colon, four through six. We are not <laughs> the author of these truths, but we need the Lord, right? So navigators need the stars to get around, and we need the Lord. So that, that's a really, you know, on one hand, sounds kind of negative, right? We need a Savior, but the truth is, We've got one. And so the reality that we're in um, is what it is, but we have ways to get around. And, you know, I've been a, a fan of the uh, Jack Aubrey novels for many years. Have either of you ever read any of those Master and Commander books? I have. Uh, uh, that's right. Maybe there's the, you yeah, remember the Patrick movie O'Brien, right? Patrick yeah. O'Brien, yeah. He wrote 21 or so of these novels about sailing around the world. And I had no interest in sailing around the world at all. It's like the early 19th century until now Father Scott Harder fell in love with these. (laughs) I grew up near the ocean, didn't care. Moved to Kansas. Like, hey, let me me read books about (laughs) ships. Um, Oddly enough, you loved corn when you were in Long Island. 
<laughs> and now I can't stand it. It's just crazy. I used to like pizza when I was in New York too. Then I ate pizza from Kansas and doesn't doesn't quite cut it. You but and I ate pizza in Kansas. Yeah. Actually, that was at uh, Pizza Hut and it was surprisingly good for uh, for Kansas. Anyway, the, flo- the floor was very sticky. I would say yes. True enough. Um, sublime to the mundane. Yeah, but what were talking- oh yeah, you know the navigation back then they didn't have. Uh, radar they didn't have gps they had to follow the stars to know where they were going it's really scary i remember some of the scenes from there the storms would come and you had no ideas they were coming you'd go around the southern tip of south america and the swells that's the the height of the waves were higher than the ship itself so you would go down Uh, the slope of the wave you'd be at the bottom and on either side of you the swells would be higher than the mast of the ship and you just realize how um how vulnerable you are to storms and Icebergs and I love Nebraska. sharks. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Nowhere near the ocean. Nope. But that's the fundamental reality of the Eucharist, right? That even in times of crisis, the document says Christ is present among us, just like he was in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, right? So there's the same idea there um, that, you know, in fact, I, I was in Galilee once with the seminarians many years ago. We were supposed to ride this little boat. A uh, little boat out, you know, they have like touristy trips on the sea, but it was a stormy day and man, were the waves too high, we had to cancel. So I can imagine being uh, shocked. The Sea of Galilee is little, you think it's like an ocean, but it's really like a big lake, but man, storms do um, show up there. So there's the fundamental condition, right? We are in need of salvation and um, it would be kind of a mean trick, Chris, right? If Jesus came and said, hey, I'm the savior, follow me. And then went back to the father and said, well, sorry, you had 33 years now. And now it's done. If you this, weren't this alive in the time little... of Christ, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. And he only little... really did anything the last three years anyway. So yeah. This might be a cheap connection here, but you know what they call the, where, where the host is kept inside of a monstrance? Luna? The Luna. The Luna. Yeah. Cause it's a, imagine a little moon shaped, like a crescent moon. Mm-hmm. That holds up uh, the the, mm-hmm. the host in an upright position. So I don't know when you're talking about the stars, which I guess would be Stella, but it reminded me of kind of these celestial bodies that here you are in this stormy sea and you have to look towards the heavens to the stars and perhaps the moon to kind of see your way through. Anyway, Stella! he doesn't say that. That's my own. That's <laughs> my own. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, and I'm in a moonless night. You realize how dark it is and in a full moon you can actually you know see yourself and you can see threats that are coming if you're camping or whatever so you know this idea that you know if christ is like the sun and the moon reflects the light there's all these beautiful images of the of the moon and the, the cosmic things in general but here's the point right not too complicated christ says i'm going back to the father but you know loser kind of lame-o things are going to happen after i go chris Jesse, is that what he said? <laughs> no. I'll just send you some. Mentioned in this document. Some I, I, don't know, I don't know, Dennis. Teach me. I don't know. I know nothing. Some third-rate version of myself will come and like keep this going. No, even greater things than this, than you've seen here, will happen. So they make the point that John Paul II says, the ongoing presence is repeated to us in the words of Christ. I am with you to the end of the age. Not the age is. Um, but the idea that Christ reality is in a different mode now, but not gone, right? So the, when we talk about real presence, it's not really an orthodoxy uh, cherry-picking test to say, do you are you orthodox enough if you believe in the real presence? You have to think about that word, presence. And I know you both know my favorite quote from 
Eve Congar about the presence of God. Do you remember season four, three, two, five, six? Something about being in the the presence of holy things bestows holiness or something. <laughs> yes, is that it? it's a microwave of God. The, the presence microwave. of God is holy and confers holiness, right? So if Christ wants to make us holy, at least by the Old Testament standards, you have to you have to encounter the living presence, the real presence, what they call um, the risen Lord in the midst of his own people. So we watch the Easter especially see Jesus walking around and he looks like a person and he's healing people. And, oh man, if we only had that. Well, we do have that, except we have it now in the form of the church as the mystical body of Christ. What are some of these other presences? Of Christ? Oh, that reminded me though. I mean, the real presence of Jesus was walking around on two feet 2000 years ago. A lot of people saw him. They didn't, they didn't recognize the real presence in the incarnate Christ 2000 years ago. So yeah, I, that would be kind of cool to be there 2000 years ago, seeing him walk around as well. Not everybody believed then. So this is not a, this is not a new thing, you know, well, that's kind believe. of the, the Emmaus story, which is really kind of a really amazing thing. You know, they're, they're like, are you the only one who haven't, hasn't heard what happened? And he's like, I'm, I am the guy that did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, right. Go ahead, Chris. Well, it's just, I mean, that, um, Maybe we'll talk about this year. This year, that uh, was it, Ecclesia de Eucharistia that John Paul wrote, or maybe um, something. I mean, the the church had a year of the Eucharist not that long ago. John, well, John Paul II died during it. Is that two thousand five? It's two thousand five. We were in the midst of a year of the Eucharist. So this is something a little bit different. This is just localized to the U.S. dioceses. But so it was either that encyclical or something he wrote at the beginning of it is, you know, the image of the disciples on the road to Emmaus was kind of the image of the Eucharist in the age of the church today, because Jesus was walking next to them and they didn't recognize him. It was only mm -hmm. in the Eucharist that their eyes were opened and they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. So if you want to see Jesus today, the real presence of Jesus today, the, the place par excellence to see him is in the is in the Eucharist. Not to mention the Johnson farm as well. There's a lot of Christ-like living going on there. <laughs> oh, on a good day. <laughs> yeah, I would think that if uh, if Jesus came back to Earth, he he'd probably settle there and <laughs> with you guys. <laughs> wow. But, you know how is this presence going to be given? Of course, there's all the mm -hmm. Old Testament prefigurings. There's Adam as the gardener. There's Christ as the new gardener. There's bread and wine, and there's the desert, and there's Melchizedek. There's a million things right that and you know all these different sacrifices in the temple grain and incense and animals and some of them are eaten and some of them are burnt and there's passover and there's bread and wine bread and wine bread and wine victims god's presence and gratitude to god is made through the offering of a victim and, and ritual and all of that stuff so um why would it not make sense that christ says in the form of the ritual of passover this is my body and as we said at the end of the last time, you have to give it to someone in the way that's proper to them. You can't eat human flesh. So he says flat out, right? And John, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in you. Wow. Quoting St. Thomas again, uh, Dennis, uh, doesn't he say <laughs> that which is received is received in the mode, the of, the mode of the receiver? Yeah. Oh, oh. that's right. Yeah. So if God's going to give himself to us, he has to do it in such a way that we who are receiving him can do it most I don't know, powerfully and fruitfully and efficaciously, like eating. Yeah. Hey, that's good, Chris. Yeah, you have your moments. Following right? your lead. That's right. So this don't notion- Don't follow my is, lead, that's for sure. Well, you have some Christ living in you too, Jesse. But um, 
crisis everywhere, right? You got the members of the church taking care of each other. You have scripture proclaimed to you. You have the cantor singing the song of Christ in the dialogue of the Trinity. You have the scriptures that are the word of God. You have parents, spouses, sisters, brothers, kids who, who love you, sharing in the presence of God. So, you know, really there's nothing, there's nothing that's not God's presence in some way. However, par excellence at the height of all of this is the Eucharist, not just as the reserved Eucharist or the host that you receive, but the Eucharist as the act of the church, which is pleading, offering, reading, governing, all of that stuff uh, wrapped up there. So, you know, I'm fond of saying, and I think I said it last week, that the Eucharist is at once like immense. How can all of creation, how can the, the divine life of the Trinity be dispensed to us this way and yet be so kind of normal? And one of the things this document says is um, he is present to us a way that, in a way that binds us together as one body. That was something that struck me. This is this document Where, called the mystery of the Eucharist yeah. and the life of the church on page seven. You're looking at page paragraph, uh, which, which six, paragraph? paragraph six. Yeah. We know he's present to us in a way that binds us together as one body. When we proclaim, proclaim our amen. Um, it's not enough that the disciples of Christ pray individually uh, those who have received the grace of baptism are not saved as individuals alone, but as members of the mystical body. This is John Paul II's uh, quote from Dies Domine. Really important to notice there, you know, I, I never get tired of talking about the mystical body of Christ, but the mystical body of Christ is another name for the church, right? It's the continuing action of Christ in the world. And we don't get saved alone. Your teacher, your doctor, your wife, your spouse, your kids, my sister always says as soon as she had kids, she never realized how many things were wrong with her. It's like her kids, oh, yeah. even when they're little, they point out and they bring out all your flaws, right? You're where you're impatient, hmm. where you have a weird mole, what, what kind of funny faces you make when you're looking at yourself in the mirror. There's like a million things that Isaac once saying. asked me if I was pregnant like mommy because I have a big <laughs> belly. So, wow. What did you tell him? I said, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Smart kid there, huh? Oh, yeah. So we well, find all these things together. We come to these things together. Yes, Chris. Uh, no, just uh, that remind me of something. Uh, you know who Janet Smith is? Uh, theologian. Yeah, the theology of the body lady. Uh, yeah, Humana Vitae. She did a lot on mm -hmm. Humana Vitae. She was a teacher of mine at uh, University of Dallas once, and uh, she's consecrated virgin. But she would say about having kids, and this is what I thought you were going to say about your sister. What reminded me of that is, once you have kids, you become more invested in. She didn't say the mystical body, but in society, right? Because as a single person, maybe you can attest to this, Dennis. I don't know. I mean, if you're a single person, you don't have kids. Who cares about playground equipment or like yep. crossing guards or, or, or who's the, the school who's system? The, yeah. Or who's elected sheriff? I mean, I know single people don't want their cars you know, broken into either. But once you start to have children, all these things are of interest to you. And so... I know, so kind of just a natural social sort of uh, way to make the same point about how all of us is, uh, you know, saved together, we thrive together, we fall together. Um, and the Eucharist, I think, is a great, uh, well, you know, even um, just the nature of bread anyway. This is, you know, that song uh, uh, from the Didache, you know, Father, we thank thee who has planted and, you know, but the grain is gathered from a uh, among the hillsides to make, you know, kind of a single loaf. So, I mean, just the kind of the natural meaning of grains coming together into one uh, finds sort of its supernatural fulfillment in uh, in the Eucharist. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's the classic notions of 
wine and uh, grains too. They have to be crushed, right? And then they're they're added uh, together with water, and then yeast makes this kind of magical thing. It's like resurrection. It's like the 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 flower has this kind of pneumatic experience, the pneuma, the spirit that fills it up. Same thing with uh, grapes; they get crushed, and they're they little blood-like and, juice. Yeah, yeah and then they, they release are, gas, and yeah. Did uh, your son ever ask you about that too? If you were like. If I release gas, yeah, <laughs> Danny, are you fermenting, <laughs> Dennis? Well, no, oh, you even should... the, they the, apparently um, in, in other you know pagan cultures or whatever other other or other religions. I guess I wanted to say, uh, bread is a very uh, uh, common element used in that because it kind of signifies in itself kind of death and resurrection. So you take a seed. And you put it in the ground and then it starts to germinate and it starts to rise and then it gets harvest, then it gets crushed and it's just going down and then it gets rises and it starts to bake and it gets crushed by teeth again. So kind of the, if you wanted to trace the history of a particular seed, it's the story of deaths and resurrections and deaths and resurrections and deaths hmm. and resurrections. So by the time you get, you know, say, a, you know, a consecrated host, you know, at mass, even just the bread has already uh, telling a story like the wine, you know, it's telling the story of dying and rising and dying and rising and dying and rising just on the natural level before it, all these things happen supernaturally. Deep. But, and and yeah. let's not let's not forget about, you know, the manna in the desert and the bread from heaven. Right. All these precursors so that we would know these gifts from God, the bread of angels, the remember the showbread in the in the temple which are these round loaves of bread brought into the presence of God and made holy because the presence of God is holy and confers holiness. That's the phrase from before. And so, wow, you have centuries, thousands of years of preparation. And then Christ says, oh, by the way, I'm that, I'm that. And that, you know, it's got to be an amazing thing to think of that uh, all the preparation that God gave, you know, he could have prepared people in like 10 minutes, right? Hey, by the way, <laughs> this is the deal, do it or else, you know? or some scary image of, of God in the sky with lightning and thunder, but it's long and slow. And we learned every lesson about Christ uh, in the meantime. Someone was asking yeah. me recently about the cosmos. Why is it so big? And there's only one little earth in it. Illogical It's for God to make a cosmos so big, but what does it tell us? Mm. How important we are being so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, is it tailed it? But is also it? how great God is, right? He can oh, make yeah. this gigantic place. I, I've mentioned this before, but something I heard a talk by Father Nicanor Ostriaco, who does a lot on Darwin and Catholicism and bringing them together and evolution and all that. And he said the reason there were dinosaurs, there were dinosaurs, was, you remember, so that we could have gasoline. Nope. <laughs> so that we could know that God could make dinosaurs, right? But it wasn't fitting for us to live on the earth at the same time, at the same time as dinosaurs. So if we never had found those bones of the dinosaurs, then we would not know we would know less about God because he can make dinosaurs, right? If we didn't know how big the universe was, we wouldn't know the greatness of God, that God is even bigger than the biggest thing that, that we like can that. imagine. So you're saying but Land the of the Lost was not a real thing oh that was my one of my favorite shows as a kid i was always scared to death about those slee stacks do you remember you were too young just living in the land of the lost no i know it well that was the remake <laughs> that you watched this was in the land of the lost, lost. father will and holly and wait mine was the expedition. remake that i watched yeah. when i was a kid the greatest earthquake ever known and then they go falling it was like the worst 
<laughs> they made a Graphics movie about too. it like uh i don't know 10 years ago yeah i know well they had these little lizard people who lived underground they were called sleaze techs and they walk around going <laughs> and they scared me to death we might a be kid. getting a slight bit off topic yeah true <laughs> enough okay look what you did chris there <laughs> i knew but, that you liked this show but the Eucharist, magnificent, extremely sublime, unbelievable, highest possible even thing that we can think of. And at the same time, this very ordinary looking stuff mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's fitting for us. And Christ equated himself and his body with the bread. So that's how we, uh, or the appearance of bread, that's how we start with this, right? We need a savior. Christ wants to save us. In order to be the savior, he has to be present to us. He was here 33 years, but that was not you know nothing more than that so how does he stay with us now in the church as the mystical body which is a corporate entity we help each other certain members have gifts that other members don't ordained not ordained bishops regular folks preachers teachers all that stuff that paul talks about so that christ can give himself to us and bring us to salvation and kind of spiritual health you know about the word salvation chris tell us about salus oh well, just means wellness. Salve, yeah. Salve, health. yeah. Health. And Fagerberg would always say that, you know, when you get a cut or a burn or something, you put set, yeah, you put salve on it. You put salve on it. Salve on it, yeah. Salve. And so the root of salvation is this salve, this, uh, I don't know, this unction or anointing of Christ's spirit that uh, brings uh, healing and restoration, strength and whatnot. Is that where you're right. going? That's where I'm going. And, you know, what is our fundamental illness you know we have our little cuts and bruises and diseases and even big diseases but our fundamental illness is we're not fully divinized we're not Mm -hmm. fully sharing in the glory that god wants to give us that's our fundamental sickness and so christ wants to heal us so this you have this food of salvation which is a food of healing and christ had to give it to us uh some way he identifies it with himself. He offers himself as a sacrifice. He joins us into his mystical body. So therefore we can offer ourselves as sacrifice to the father. And then we can share in that reality. And then the Eucharist, as we receive it, is the culmination of the fulfillment of this larger thing called the Eucharist, which is the rite of what we call the mass, I guess, most of the time or the celebration of the Eucharist. So traditionally, you know, if you had um, rites of sacrifice of some kind, you would always eat the victim. That was the that was the communion, right? The common union or the coming together of in one. So, I never get tired of my friend, deceased friend Jean Honey, right? But he, he makes the point that in the Asian world, the priest would identify with the victim. He would put his hands on the ox's head or something, and then he would send the victim into the spiritual realm. He'd be sac- uh, made sacrificed, made holy made consecrated into the spiritual realm, but he couldn't go there because he would literally die. So the animal would take his place and then you would eat the animal because it had been sent to the holy place of heaven and made holy and then brought back to earth. And then when you had communion with the animal, it became the bearer of this mm-hmm. consecrated reality because it was sent into the presence of, of God or the gods as they would have thought. But it was always by way of substitution. Now we have Christ who doesn't have to substitute, right? Because he's it. He's the offerer. He's the victim. In a sense, he substitutes for us. There's a lot of laying on of hands, you know, in, in Christianity. And so the, the Last Supper is when, in part, when it's uh, instituted as an everlasting sacrifice 
Sounds kind of crazy. I see your brows are furrowed, Chris, there. I don't know if you're furred about something else, but. No, no, no. Are you look, I'm looking at number nine here. Where it talks about. Oh, I'm still at number eight, but. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, ever, eight. So, right. It's, it's citing the, um, the Mass of the Lord's Supper, right? So this is in the, uh, this must be in the preface, I suppose. For he is the true and eternal priest who instituted the pattern of an everlasting sacrifice, was the first to offer himself as the saving victim commanding us to make this offering as his memorial. Is that what you're uh, yeah. thinking about there? Yeah. So there were lots of priests, whether in the mm -hmm. pagan world or in the um, Jewish tradition, they were not the true priests. I mean, they were acting as priests. They were doing priestly activity, but they're human beings. Uh, and then Christ is the, this eternal priest who offers not just a sacrifice for this year or for this Jubilee or this 25 year period or whatever, but an eternal offering who instituted the pattern, not just, a sacrifice for himself, an everlasting sacrifice, mm -hmm. but a pattern mm -hmm. of the everlasting sacrifice. And I love that next line. And was the first to offer himself as the saving victim. Everybody else had to offer something else, an ox, a dove, some green, whatever. And then he said, commanding us to make this offering as his memorial. So yeah. he did it and he says, hey, you keep doing it. Yeah, I've thought about this uh, text before, too, different occasions. And some of the things that have come to my mind is, uh, you know, this business about the pattern of an everlasting sacrifice. And I don't know if there's any, maybe it's a matter of translation. Um, but do you think, Dennis, you know, they say that Moses built the tent after the pattern of what he saw on the mountain. Do you think yes. that's evocative of that, you know, that there's this heavenly model or exemplar that uh, we're trying to reflect down below moses tried to do it in the tent in the wilderness and now we're doing something similar today yeah whether it's in a direct allusion to that or not i think the idea is the same right the ten commandments mm -hmm. are first given before he sees this pattern for the tabernacle on the mountain that's how do you live how do you live like god right how do you live like members of the mystical body here's a pattern don't steal, don't murder, don't covet, right? So here's another pattern, right? You want to enter into this everlasting sacrifice that's been prepared for thousands of years? Do it like this. Or our Father, teach us how to pray. Yeah. This is how you should do it. Right? Yeah. And you know, related to that, you know, the other thing from this line, he was the first to offer himself as the saving victim. It seems you can read that a couple of ways. One, like you did, like They've been trying to do this up until the time of Christ, but they never did. He was the first mm -hmm. one to do it. And but I, think I know you where you're also, going with this. Yeah, <laughs> I could also read it as, uh, well, if there was a first, is there going to be a second and a third mm -hmm. and a fourth and a fifth? And I think the answer to that is, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. And you're supposed to do. It says in one of the Eucharistic prayers, I don't remember which one is, but uh, may he make us an eternal offering to you. And so I think if Jesus was the first and he showed us the pattern, the expectation is there will be a second, a third, and a fourth, and a 10,000th, you know, until the end of the age of others like him who will offer ourselves as a, as a victim. Mm -hmm. Did we do a podcast once? I was thinking this the other day about- Are you a victim at mass? Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we did, did that, that live here on Yeah, campus. we did, oh, we did that at Benedictine. Yeah, we were one. here. So he commands us to make this offering, right? the offering of the saving victim as his memorial and uh memorial memorial my that word uh, do this in memory word. of me chris why isn't that just yeah. a ho-hum i ha, i recall ha, ha, that ha, this ha. happened a long time ago yeah or this Jesse. is uh, this is one of our yeah do you remember An what that anamnesis yeah. yeah tell us about it well it means to make 
real uh, something that happened, make present something that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's the word that Jesus uses at the supper, do this as an anamnesis of me, such that when the church and the spirit remember this action, it becomes, bam, present right before your very mm-hmm. sacramental eyes in a real way. Right, and Anna is back, right, or again? Yeah. Yeah, to carry back or again, yeah, lead back. And that nisus is uh, to remember, like your mnemonic device. So take that memory and bring it back again uh, in an efficacious and true and real way. Okay, so there you go. This is the plan. Christ sets the pattern and we eat his flesh that was sacrificed for us because the victim was the one offered. And it was sent into the heavenly realm. Then it was its food was the its flesh was the bearer of that heavenly reality. And the people were strengthened or made holy, and we are made strong as we drink his blood that was poured out for us. We are washed clean. That's always a funny image, you know, washed clean in the blood of the lamb. Remember that Mm -hmm. article you had me write a long time ago for Adoramus about the mystical bath, Chris? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's so great. Crazy late medieval painting of this big vat of blood. And all these people are like climbing and taking their clothes off and climbing in and then climbing out the other side. And you're like, this is really gross. I mean, could you imagine like literally climbing into a vat of blood? That would be horror movie stuff, you know? And yet somehow you're washed clean or the white robes of the, of the many in heaven are washed clean in the blood of the lamb. So this life, you know, blood is the life, right? And the life washes away anything in us that is not God's own reality. So here it is, right? The words of the liturgy on the night, the church commemorates the institution of the Eucharist. That's Holy Thursday. Speak to us as the representation of Christ's unique sacrifice. Now you said representation, I think last week. What's that about representation? Can we just like watch a PowerPoint show? That's a representation, right? Or a <laughs> passion play or a Jesus of Nazareth movie or yeah, a Gibson yeah. movie. Yeah, that's the real um that's one of the things that's certainly difficult to to understand is that that uh, what the mass is, is not, you know, a power play or like watching uh, the passion of the Christ, but the one single. Do you mean movie- a passion play, Chris? You said power play, which it kind oh, of is, sorry. right? <laughs> yeah. God's not to power. be confused, not to be confused oh, with man. a passion point. It's a, a new Microsoft product. <laughs> oh, Anyways. Wow. That's, wow. That's where's, my, where's my cricket? We haven't had crickets yet this semester. Michael, can you give us some crickets on that? Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Go with your power play. Oh, man. Yeah, so once upon a time, Jesus had the sacrifice. And at Mass, he's not re-sacrificed. He can't be re-sacrificed. You could, 2,000 years ago, you could separate his body from his blood, from his soul, and he'd die. He did. But he can't do that anymore. He can't die any longer. So at Mass, it's it's not a re-sacrifice, but you have the same victim. You have the same altar in a certain sense, the cross, you have the same priest who's making the offering. So that same thing that happened 2000 years ago is kind of plonked down, isn't the theological term, but it's made present. It's represented uh, again uh, under this, under the form of sacramental signs and symbols, but it's really, truly before our, our very eyes. And huh, that's really hard to understand how that's, uh, how that's the case. Right, because it doesn't look so much like the um, bloody sacrifice of, of Calvary. But that's okay, right? Because remember that bloody sacrifice of Calvary is only one aspect of the Paschal mystery. So yes, it's the offering of Christ, but it's also the victory over, over sin and death, the re- resurrection implies. And so if we lose our eschatological sense that the, the Eucharist is primarily 
at least at the top of the flow chart, this participation in the heavenly wedding banquet of the lamb, that's the victorious lamb who was resurrected and slain and all these things kind of eternally, but fundamentally the victorious second person of the Trinity is reigning Mm -hmm. in glory. That's why mass looks more like that than it does the suffering moment in Calvary. Right, Dennis. So if, if, if the church is able in a certain sense to reach back in time to Calvary 2000 years ago, her hand is kind of extending through heaven to get there, right? It can't bypass heaven and go directly back on sort of a timeline linear thing if her access to that historical event passes through eternity, passes through heaven. This is that eschatological reality you're talking about? Yeah, right. Because the to be immolated and to be resurrected are kind of eternal characteristics of Christ, right? So there's a historical breaking in. But sacrifice from the beginning, we talked about this last time, right? So the the suffering Christ on the cross, self-offering immolation victim, absolutely, right? Resurrected Christ, absolutely. The glorified body of Christ that they see, you know, passing through walls, absolutely. But the wedding feast of the Lamb takes all of that stuff, and it becomes the celebration of the entire saving mystery. And the current condition that Christ is in now is the resurrected outside of space and time, you know, glorified, sitting at the right hand of the Father, standing at the right hand of the Father. And so we're participating in that condition primarily, mm-hmm. but that condition includes all that other stuff, right? This is the wedding feast of the Lamb has begun, his bride is prepared to welcome him. And so that glory is the way th- um, that the Mass is presented, but that doesn't do any harm or damage to the real sacrificial offering and, and suffering of Christ mm-hmm. as well, because these are all kind of concomitant realities. Ooh, concomitant. Concomitant. We'll talk about that next time. Yes. If this document, this is a good start, I think, to this document. Uh, but if if anybody out there wanted to read it, it's called The Mystery of the Eucharist and the Life of the Church. And the USCCB has, uh, you can find this on the USCCB site, and they have another site called i think it's eucharisticrevival.org or something like that it's posted mm-hmm. there but yeah this has been a good uh it's been a pretty good congratulations father fuller uh and others for uh putting together what appears to be a really uh really substantial letter yeah it's only 30 something pages i read the whole thing in about an hour and it hits all these important points is that your way of saying uh you're winding me down you give me the hook chris by saying that sounds, <laughs> what it sounds for, like. i'm waiting for jesse to that's no, I just, i'm just thinking about the question that we have so if we could get to that then i would feel a lot better well let's let's just there's a section here and we're just about done with it so that we'll start at letter okay. a next time so all this stuff we've been talking about participation the wedding feast of the lamb and all that. And that's just where it goes next. The mission of the Lord's entire life was to glorify the father by bringing us to salvation and to become sharers in his divine nature. That's it. Okay. So we probably have a lot of good Catholics as listeners. Maybe we have, I know we have a number of priests who listen. Um, and we did a Pew study and- on our listeners and <laughs> only about 47% are Catholic. That's right. <laughs> only 30% believe what they hear. But fifty oh, percent believe that we believe what we say. <laughs> yeah, okay, we're, we're here. here, okay. here. We're, no, no, no. We're not done. We're not done. Here's I the mean, bottom line. I right? mean, Jesse, now you're done goofing around. Back to you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought I'd, I'd have a, uh, like speak a slightly, for yourself. A slightly awkward pause there, just to you know give you a certain <laughs> amount of terror. So shares in the divine nature. Okay, Father Adam Wilzak and other listeners that I know here shares in the divine nature. Wow. Sharers in the divine nature. Christ took humanity into divinity so that humanity could, I mean, 
took humanity into divinity so divinity could be brought anyway you know what i'm trying to say right god became man so we could become god that's the idea yeah. but now this would be a great pew question how many catholics believe that by receiving the eucharist they become shares in the divine nature that's what i was getting at before chris now I that think, i think yeah. would be uh unfortunately way 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 too low and that's very sad because I mean, that's, that's the real message so awesome about that's the real eucharist. real real message you know, the, the, the last section of this, last sentence of this section is they quote from Laudato Si from Pope Francis, creation is projected in the Eucharist, creation is projected toward divinization, toward the holy wedding feast, toward unification with the creator himself. So remember, Christ took all of creation on himself, returns it all to the Father. So if you're out there and you're like really into social justice, well, you know what? The best way to become socially just is to convince everybody to receive the Eucharist, to be mm -hmm. transformed by divine life. You're interested in the ecology? The best way to help that is to offer the world to the Father mm -hmm. through the, the headship of Christ in the Eucharist, to receive the Eucharist yourself, become holy and not just a political radical, and to participate in this joy, to be unified with the Creator himself. Man, to be unified with the Creator himself. This is mm -hmm. the method. It's appropriate to us. It has a long history, and it's available every day. And oh, um, do I have to go to Mass? Is it a holy day of obligation? Imagine if winning the lottery is like, is this, a, is this a lottery winning day of obligation? It's like, no, absolutely not. This is Opportunity Day. And the Eucharist is the way that's given to us principally. All right, now you can, uh, now you can do whatever you do to wind this down. Hey, Jesse. I think we should go into the next section. What else is that? No, I'm just kidding. I think the next section starts paragraph 10. I'm we just have kidding. A liturgy okay, question. so we, we're through, we went through a nine? Nine, if yeah. anybody's scoring along at home? Okay, awesome. All right, so. Do we have a liturgy question, Jesse? We something we to do. rescue me from Chris's bloviating. <laughs> we we do have a liturgy question. Let's, <laughs> okay, uh, great. Let's get a, let's uh, read it. I guess. Mail call. Mail call. Oh Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. All right, this. Question comes from Kunigunda. Kunigunda says, hello, Liturgy Yay. Guys. Hey, Kunigunda's back. Yes. She says, hello, Liturgy Guys. I was wondering, with all of the parishes closing, is there an official ritual for closing a church building? Hmm. I get this question with some regularity. Do you, Dennis? I know you, you write on uh, the order for the dedication of a church and altar. Yeah, is there a chapter in there about that? Decommissioning, right? Isn't that what the phrase I'm is? I'm usually involved in the building of churches, but. Yeah. <laughs> I'm involved with the closing of churches. <laughs> That's why you're more popular than I am, Dennis. Mm -hmm. Well, there's yeah, a lot of reasons. You're a, you're you're a church closer and I'm a church mm -hmm. builder. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, what's the answer here? This is like a legal thing, so. Yeah, well. Well, what do you think, Jesse? Do you think there's a right for the closing of a church? Um, I don't think there's a right. My guess is that there is a process um, mm -hmm. by which you can decommission something. But I don't know that because yeah. a, a right would imply something that of like sacrality. That, uh, closing a church or decommissioning a church seems like the opposite of that. So mm -hmm. I don't know that we'd call it a right, but yeah. I could be wrong. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you are correct that there is no official right for the closing of a church. Uh, but I think a lot of the faithful and probably a lot of pastors do kind of feel the feel the uh, the absence of such a thing when uh, 
the bishop comes to celebrate the last mass in the church. So I, I don't know. I think they need, it, it would be helpful, I think, if there was sort of a funeral for a church building or something like that, where the last mass is celebrated, but there's not. And so, you know, I think what we've done in, in lacrosse, when this is the case, is, you know, the bishop will come and uh, celebrate the last mass. I don't know if he reads that. There's like a canonical, um, I don't know, decree or some sort of thing that relegates the church to uh, profane use which doesn't mean uh, uh, evil use. It just means no longer secular use. And I think, you know. Uh, sacred use, you mean, yeah. Yes. Relegated no longer to no use. longer sacred. What did I say yeah. again? You said no longer secular use, but that's what uh, I'm here for. Yeah, I got well, your I'm back, man. all over today. Yeah, more coffee. Anyway, and then, you know, maybe they would receive the Blessed Sacrament for the last time or do a procession to the church that is going to, uh, the, the other place is going to uh, combine with and the candles extinguish things like that the doors might be locked something like that but no there's no official right for the closing of a church at least and i'm not aware of, even though some dioceses may have kind of constructed something quasi-official leave taking and goodbye mm -hmm. ceremonies and things like that and there used to be yeah. lots of ways things could be deconsecrated you know through violence right if the mm -hmm. murder someone was murdered in the church they would lose its consecration had to be reconsecrated but that was always some kind of exceptional and violent Actually, Wait, Dennis, right. have you ever seen that? Uh, th there's a rite in the ceremonial of bishops for sort of re-consecrating a church after something sacrilegious has happened mm -hmm. in it, and mm -hmm. it parallels pretty closely the, uh, the the dedication of a church. Yeah, my sister church on Long Island, a sort of man with serious mental illness came in the church and set it on fire and killed himself in the church. Mm -hmm. And they had to uh, first repair all the damage and then have an actual mm -hmm. re-consecration. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, all go. right, Kunagunda. I hope that answers your question and uh, certainly answered a question I didn't know that I had. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless. Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are Chris, get out of my dreams and into my Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse Y.O.Y.O. Weiler. Our producers are Michael Don't Be So Coy and Nathan First Round Draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey Shrivam and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. Guys.